How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. This episode has been a long time coming. It's one that I'm very excited for. And what can you possibly say about Alexander the Great? He's one of the most impactful men of history. He's possibly the greatest conqueror of all time. He established an enormous empire, the likes of which the world had never seen. From the Balkans in the west to India in the east, from Armenia in the north to Egypt in the south. As the Greco-Roman biographer Arian would later say, one can point to no other man, Greek or barbarian, who performed exploits so numerous and so momentous. And I am inclined to agree. It's also just a great adventure story. One of the reasons that I love the life story of Alexander is that he was the last great military leader who swung his own sword. He was himself a gifted horseman and powerful warrior who was an integral part of his own battles and fought from the front. The final reason that I'll mention that I love this story is that he inspired so many other greats. Napoleon studied his campaigns and Julius Caesar famously had his life changed by Alexander. As you'll recall, Julius Caesar was a youngish man in Spain who hadn't accomplished much of anything yet, and he came upon a statue of Alexander the Great and burst into tears. Plutarch tells us that, quote, His friends were surprised and asked him the reason of it. Do you think, said he, I have not just cause to weep, when I consider that Alexander at my age had conquered so many nations, and I have all this time done nothing that is memorable? He then, of course, proceeded to found the Roman Empire, And I hope that some of you will have your Caesar moment when listening to this podcast and be inspired like Caesar to greater things. So let's jump into it. But first, one thing I want to make a small note on my sources. I used three books as my primary sources, Alexander the Great and His Time by Agnes Seville, Philip and Alexander, Kings and Conquerors by Adrian Goldsworthy. I really enjoyed this one and highly recommend it. And The Landmark Arian, The Campaigns of Alexander. Arian was a Greco-Roman born in 86 AD, He was the only man to be both a consul in Rome and the archon of Athens, the highest office in that city. He wrote his history of Alexander the Great as basically an account of his life and a critical analysis of his virtues and vices. So his biography of Alexander is essentially a 2,000-year-old episode of How to Take Over the World. I think I've talked about the Landmark series before, but it really is so good if you like ancient history. For the Landmark Arian, they have produced a really good translation that is very readable with tons of clarifying footnotes to help you understand it and a lot of maps and pictures to help you make sense of what the action is and where it's taking place. If you're a casual fan, it might not be super interesting, but if you're even a mild history nerd, uh, I really recommend it. I also mention it because I'm going to be quoting a ton from Arian throughout this series. He wrote a very faithful history. He had plenty of access to firsthand accounts, so it's pretty cool to read these accounts. It really transports you. You feel like you're back in Alexander's time. Okay, so that's it for sources. And finally, before we get started, a word from our sponsors. I'm going to give you a little spoiler and tell you about an incident from the middle of Alexander's life. On one of his campaigns, Alexander had one of his officers, a powerful man from a well-to-do city-state, stripped of his rank. What was this man's offense that Alexander would punish him so harshly? He took a bath in warm water. Wild, right? Why was it so important to Alexander that his men bathe only in cold water? Well, he knew it kept them sharp, and actually modern science has confirmed the benefits of cold exposure and cold baths specifically. Taking cold baths has been shown to increase blood flow, improve sleep, support your immune system, and boost your mood, among other benefits. That's why ice baths are something that I've incorporated into my fitness regime for a long time. But guess what? My days of hauling giant bags of ice from the grocery store are over. That's because I am proud to partner with Cold Plunge. 
The cold plunge has cooling technology that gives you ice bath levels of cold without all the hassle. And with their filtration and sanitation technology, it makes the experience far superior to an ice bath or chest freezer. You can fill up your cold plunge with a hose, set your temperature, and you're off. It couldn't be easier. So check them out at thecoldplunge.com and use code BENWILSON to get $150 off. Once again, that is thecoldplunge.com and use my name as the code B-E-N-W-I-L-S-O-N for $150 off. Alexander was born in 356 BC. This is about 100 years after the Golden Age of Athens, so the Greeks are still dominant throughout the Mediterranean in terms of trade, art, philosophy, and culture, but they had lost some of their luster. The greatest world power at the time, at least as far as they knew, was Persia. The Persian Empire extended from modern-day Turkey all the way to India and included most of the Middle East. But, like the Greeks, the Persian Empire was also viewed as somewhat past its prime. And while it was the twilight of Greek political power, Alexander was born at the time of what is considered a golden age of Greek philosophy. One of the greatest Greek philosophers, Aristotle, was alive at the same time as Alexander, and in fact the two knew each other as we shall soon see. And one of the things that these philosophers loved to philosophize about was this question of what has happened to Greece and how do we make Greece great again? Well, one philosopher, Isocrates, basically said that the Greeks had run out of places to expand and to settle. And so they just squabbled among themselves. And what they needed to do, according to Isocrates, was invade Persia. That would give them plenty of land and plenty of riches to go around. The only problem was that this would take Greek unity. And the Greeks were famously fractious. They were constantly infighting. And it seemed unlikely that they could rally around a leader because they didn't want to elevate a single city-state. In other words, Sparta would never follow an Athenian leader or a Theban one or a Corinthian leader and vice versa. It was fitting then that the person who eventually united Greece in this cause came from outside of Greece. Philip, Alexander's father, was a Macedonian. Macedonia was an undomesticated backwater just north of Greece. Rich in resources like timber and gold, Macedonia was a region to be fought over by larger powers like Athens, Thebes, or Sparta, not a kingdom that ever exerted influence or dominion over others, especially not in the Greek world. Macedonians were kind of sort of Greeks. They spoke a Greek dialect and worshipped the same gods as the Greeks, but they were not as developed economically, technologically, or culturally. And the big difference that I think made the Greeks think that the Macedonians weren't truly Greek was that they didn't live in city-states. Now, city-states were the center of Greek civic, political, and social life. So for the Macedonians to live in this, to Greek eyes, less developed way um, made, made them not Greek. But Philip was an unbelievably gifted statesman and military leader, and he managed to raise Macedonia up, conquer its neighbors, and eventually bring all of Greece under his dominion. And when he did, with his first act, he got them all to agree that they would participate in a combined invasion of Persia. As Philip's oldest able-bodied son, Alexander was the heir apparent to the Macedonian kingdom when he was born. And he soon showed himself to be worthy to be Philip's heir. He was short but strong and a good sprinter. He was a gifted musician and orator. He was intelligent, strong-willed, impatient, curious, and charming. The most famous story from Alexander's childhood occurred when he was 12 or 13 years old. He's with his father when they come across a horse breeder who wants to show a magnificent horse to Philip. And supposedly this horse is beautiful, tall and strong with a beautiful dark coat and a white mark on its forehead. But the man wants to charge King Philip an unprecedented 13 talents for the horse. Philip scoffs at the price, especially when his groomers are completely unable to tame it. He declines to purchase and is getting ready to leave when Alexander protests and says, they can't pass on such a magnificent, beautiful horse. And Philip kind of says, uh, like, okay, what do you want me to do? My groomsmen can't tame it. 
uh, do you think you can do better than them? They're professionals. And Alexander basically says, yeah, I, I think I can. So they make a bet. If Alexander can tame the horse, Philip will buy it for him. So Alexander carefully approaches this horse. And he's noticed that when the king's men had tried leading the horse, it was spooked by its own shadow. So Alexander carefully turns the horse toward the sun so he won't see his own shadow anymore and starts soothing him and speaking softly to him. Soon the horse calms to Alexander's presence, who is unable to hop on his back and gallop around with the horse eventually really letting loose and astounding everyone with his unbelievable speed. It's a great story, probably an exaggeration, but the horse named Bucacephalus was real and he's probably the most famous horse of all time. Bucacephalus would accompany Alexander on nearly all his conquests and Alexander would even end up naming a city Bucacephala after his horse. So Alexander was this naturally gifted young boy, but he also had the best education that money could buy. And it's interesting because he had two distinct types of education. He received a traditional Macedonian education, which was much more martial in nature. He learned to ride, to hunt, to swing a sword, and every other skill he'd need to be an effective warrior. His primary tutor for this phase of his education was a guy named Leonidas, like the famous Spartan king. Not the same person, they just have the same name. He's a relative of Alexander's mother, and he's your stereotypical hard-nosed drill master tough guy teacher. He would go through Alexander's stuff and throw out any treats or gifts that his mother had given him. Alexander would later say that, quote, Leonidas's idea of breakfast was a night march, and his idea of dinner was a light breakfast. He was extremely cheap, and he would always butt heads with Alexander over sacrifices. Alexander was very religiously observant, always scrupulous in his observation of proper rituals, sacrifices, prayers, and, and things like that. And he was always generous in his sacrifices and offerings. Well, this bothered Leonidas, who, as I said, was always cheap. And so he would always tell him he was wasting too much incense in his offering. So later, after a big victory that made Alexander, you know, rich and famous and made him a bunch of money, he sent 18 tons of frankincense and myrrh. So, you know, like multiple shipping containers full of incense. And essentially, as a practical joke, he had it dumped on Leonidas's front step with a note that said, in the future, I hope you will not be so miserly in your offerings to the gods. Now, that was the Macedonian part of his education. He also received a, a top-rate Greek education as well. At age 13, Philip finds Alexander a new tutor, Aristotle. And Aristotle is, of course, one of the great philosophers of the ancient world. And whereas Greek philosophy generally um, was more kind of theoretical, if you think about um, like Socrates and Plato, Aristotle was much more grounded in reality, in observing nature, and uh, he made more important discoveries and observations in biology, geology, and astronomy, in addition to the more typical philosophical fields of politics and metaphysics and, and more heady stuff like that. And it is obviously very intriguing that these two had such a close relationship. Unfortunately, we don't have access to Aristotle's curriculum, wouldn't you just love to know what he taught him and how he taught him and what those interactions were like? If I could choose to be a fly on the wall of any time in history, I think seeing Aristotle tutor Alexander the Great would be way, way up there near the top. But one thing that you can say is that Alexander had an insatiable curiosity, a love of learning and discovering new things that he kept with him his whole life. And I think he learned a lot of that from Aristotle. Now, I said that Alexander was Philip's heir apparent, but it's a little more complicated than that. Macedonian kings were polygamous, meaning they had multiple wives, and Alexander was born to Philip's fourth wife, Olympias. She was the daughter of a nearby king, Neoptolemus of Epirus, and she was a very intelligent and strong-willed woman. And Macedonian royal polygamy was a double-edged sword. It meant that there was plenty of heirs around, but it also meant that there was often conflict for the throne. There were no set inheritance rules. It, it seemed like usually the throne went to the oldest son, but not always. 
There was a lot of court intrigue, a lot of plotting, secret murders and poisonings, rebellions. It was actually very rare for a Macedonian king to die peacefully in his bed. And so Alexander and his mother Olympias are both quite paranoid about his position as heir, especially when Philip marries his seventh wife. Everyone knew that he was planning a big invasion of Persia, and it was anticipated that it would take years to carry out this invasion. So, okay, if you're going to be gone for years, you really need to make sure that your home front, your home territory is secure. And Philip, usually when he was trying to secure something or, or make an alliance, he cemented it with a marriage, and this was no different. So for the first time, Philip takes a native-born Macedonian for his wife. Many Macedonians, especially the nobility, are thrilled about this. But it's not a great thing for Alexander because a son born to this marriage would automatically have a very strong claim to the throne because of the fact that he would be full-blooded Macedonian. Well, the situation is made worse at the wedding. One of Philip's top generals, a man by the name of Attalus, proposes a toast. And by background, Attalus was one of the most powerful men in Macedonia, perhaps the most powerful outside of the king himself. And for this reason, Philip was marrying Attalus's niece. So their families are getting united through this marriage, which is a big win for Attalus. And so in his toast, Attalus says, may this union bless Macedonia with a legitimate heir. And you know, ooh, so, so this is clearly an insult, a direct shot at Alexander, who does not take it well. He throws a cup of wine at Attalus and yells, are you calling me a bastard? Philip stands up to try and break up this fight, but by this time, he's in his mid-40s, and he's been through a lot of fighting and has a whole bunch of injuries, including a permanent limp that he developed when he was stabbed through the thigh with a spear. He's also been at a wedding all day. Presumably, he's had a few drinks. So when he stands up to try and break up this brewing fight, he trips and falls flat on his face. Alexander, still heated, points at Philip on the ground and says, look, everyone, this man was planning to cross from Europe to Asia, but he cannot even cross from one couch to another. This obviously enrages Philip. A royal wedding was an opportunity for him to cement and reaffirm his power in front of his most important subjects in his kingdom. And instead, he's humiliated by what is, let's face it, a pretty sick burn from Alexander. So Philip stands up and he's spitting mad. He draws his sword. He wants to kill Alexander. But luckily, his friends restrain him, giving Alexander the time he needs to escape. Alexander goes and spends some time with his mother's family in Epirus, waiting to see how things will shake out. And all of Philip's friends are telling him, look, man, you have to make peace with the kid. You can't leave for this invasion of Persia without an adult male heir who's capable of ruling in case you die on campaign. And to his credit, Philip takes their advice. He extends the olive branch, brings Alexander back home, and makes peace. Having said that, there's still a little bit of unease and a little bit of suspicion between Alexander, his mother Olympias, and Philip. But needing a strong heir in place, Philip really bends over backwards to accommodate them. As part of that, he has a big monument constructed that has a statue of him standing right behind him, are Olympias and Alexander. So it's very clear, like, this is the royal family. Olympias, Philip, Alexander. Philip is making every effort to reemphasize that, hey, Alexander is my one and only true heir. Another thing he does to assuage their fears is arrange a powerful royal marriage between his daughter and Olympias's brother. This wedding is really supposed to be Philip's final act before heading off to Asia to invade the Persian Empire. It's basically a very elaborate way of saying, hey everyone, I'm super cool and powerful, check me out, and by the way, if I die, Alexander's in charge. See how important this family is to me? Alexander's the guy. But as we know, if you listen to the Philip episode, Philip is assassinated at this wedding. Alexander acts very quickly. He's obviously in the strongest position to take over his father's kingdom, but he needs to worry about rebellions. If the Greeks see even a hint of dissension in the Macedonian ranks or get a whiff of weakness from Alexander, they're very likely to rebel. So Alexander acts very quickly 
and is ruthless in consolidating power. One of Philip's top nobles and commanders, a guy named Antipater, brings the soldiers together at a place called Virginia and carries out the necessary ceremony where the soldiers declare Alexander king as they clash their spears on their shields. Alexander is 20 years old when this happens and he becomes king. After this, Alexander has any other potential rivals, anyone even kind of remotely who might think about it, he has them killed, uh, including the infant daughter of Philip's seventh wife. Women obviously couldn't sit the throne, but I guess he must have feared that she could have legitimated the claims of a man by marrying him, um, or, or, or you know, he had some fears around this. At the time, many claimed that Olympias was behind the killing and that she did it out of pure spite and jealousy. It's impossible to say now with certainty who ordered it and why, but it is a, a pretty ugly incident from early in Alexander's reign. In any case, there were three top commanders who Alexander had to reckon with. The first, Antipater, was with Alexander in Macedonia, and as we just saw, was immediately loyal and declared him king. Okay, so one of these top nobles down. The other two were actually together in Asia Minor, leading Philip's advance guard for his invasion force of Persia. Their names were Attalus and Parmenion. Attalus was the same guy who Alexander had just thrown the wine at at the wedding, and he immediately knows that he's in danger. There are two stories. One is that he writes to Athens, asking them to join him in rising up against Alexander, but then changes his mind. Attalus, of course, tells a different story. He claims that Demosthenes of Athens wrote to him, asking him to rebel, but he rejected the letter and, um, and immediately told Alexander. For Alexander, who really hates Attalus, it probably wouldn't have mattered either way. He writes to Parmenion and basically says, hey, could you do me a solid and prove your loyalty by killing Attalus? Attalus was actually Parmenion's son-in-law, so there was some relationship there. But Parmenion could see which way the wind was blowing, and he does, in fact, have Attalus killed. So with that, the internal danger of a Macedonian challenging Alexander for the kingship is over. But before Alexander can carry out his father's dream and invade Persia, he needs to make sure that his broader empire is obedient and his borders are secure. For his first act, Alexander calls together all the Greek city-states in something called the League of Corinth. This was an organization established by Philip that was essentially a puppet state for him to control all of Greece except for Sparta, who refused to join, but everyone else, all the Greek city-states, belonged to this organization called the League of Corinth, and they met, naturally, in the city-state of Corinth. So Alexander calls them together, essentially for them to come and bend the knee, kiss the ring, and, and say, you know, we're on board. Alexander, you're totally the king, you're very powerful, you're very cool, your jokes are funny, we love you. So he does this, and while visiting Corinth, many of the city's exceptional residents come to Alexander with their congratulations. However, one significant absence was the philosopher Diogenes the Cynic. And based on that name, the Cynic, you can probably guess what kind of philosopher he was. He was very controversial. He accused everyone of corruption. He criticized society and lived outside of society, basically. He lived in a barrel outside the city, only wore one simple rough spun garment, and basically lived as a homeless vagrant. That is why the school that he founded is known as Cynicism, which literally means dog-like. In other words, implying that Diogenes lived like a dog. Alexander wants to meet Diogenes, calls on him, but he was basically given the response that, hey, if Alexander wants to meet me, he knows where to find me. So Alexander, this big, powerful king, treks to the philosopher's barrel outside the city where he found Diogenes sunbathing. Uh, the philosopher like took no notice of Alexander, basically ignored his presence. And uh, when Alexander finally asks him, hey, is there anything I can do for you? Uh, Diogenes is said to have raised himself up a little bit, look at Alexander, squinted, and goes, yeah, move a little to the side. You're in the way of the sun. 
As they walked away, members of Alexander's retinue were making fun of Diogenes, saying, uh, can you believe this crazy, insane man? How could he say anything like that? But Alexander silenced them and said, hey, if I weren't Alexander, I would wish to be Diogenes. So Alexander returns from Corinth with his empire firmly in control. He then turns his eyes towards securing his borders in preparation for carrying out the invasion of Persia. He also wants to try out his new army. Um, he had been an important commander under his father, Philip, but this is his first time in command of the entire Macedonian army. And, you know, if this is going to be your first time in that position, you don't want your first battle to be invading Persia. You don't want your first game to be the Super Bowl, so to speak. So he marches around to Thrace and Illyria, which are two tribal areas on the border of Macedonia. And, you know, you kind of always had to worry about the Thracians and Illyrians because um, they could always start acting up and start doing raids on your borders. So it was always kind of a good idea just to bring some forces through and, and beat up on them a little bit. So that's what Alexander does. He, uh, he takes his men through Thrace and Illyria and, and beats up on some local tribesmen and some local kings. Um, but during one of those battles, he is injured. It's nothing major, but um, it actually spirals into a rumor that Alexander has died. He's been away for a few months, so it was kind of like fertile ground for a rumor that Alexander was dead. And when this rumor reaches Greece, Thebes, one of the major city-states there, starts celebrating and they declare their freedom from Macedonia. Alexander, when he hears this, leaves Thrace and force marches his troops all the way to Thebes. He gets there with astonishing rapidity, weeks before anyone believed that he could have done it. And as you'll recall, fast marching is a hallmark of great conquerors, and Alexander could march with the best of them. He was lightning fast. When the Thebans see his advance guard, they think that there is no way this is Alexander, who A, was just in Thrace, and B, is supposedly dead. So they're like, uh, w w this must be the home guard, this must be just some local soldiers from Macedonia. Um, they refuse to believe it, but soon it becomes apparent that no, this is Alexander, who is alive with his full army. He besieges Thebes, and actually there's a battle outside the city walls. The Thebans think they have a chance in open combat, so they bring their men outside the city walls. Alexander's men see an opportunity and commit themselves without his explicit command, but in their haste, they overextend and are countercharged by the Thebans. But the Thebans make the same mistake and are in turn, counter-counter-charged by Alexander's forces. And they're really routed, they're running away. They retreat back into the city so quickly that they're unable to close the city gates behind them, and Alexander's men flood into the city and lay waste to it, massacring thousands of Thebans. In the end, Alexander decides that the city has been so thoroughly destroyed by his men that it's beyond saving. Plus, it has been rebellious besides, so he destroys the city and enslaves the remainder of the populace. And this is, of course, very controversial. Uh, Alexander claims, you know, it was just, there was this accident. My men got in the city. They destroyed the city. I just had to do away with it. Um, other people accuse him of, no, this was like a deliberate act by you to destroy Thebes, to punish them for rebelling against you. Again, it's now 2,300 years ago. Who knows who's telling the true story about that? Now, after this destruction of Thebes, there's some awkwardness. Some of the city-states had expressed willingness to aid Thebes, or at least had expressed encouragement of the rebellion. This included Athens. And I love this quote from Arian, who you might remember is that uh, Greco-Roman biographer of Alexander. He said, quote, the Athenians sent 10 envoys to Alexander to say that the people of Athens were delighted by his safe return from the Illyrians, even if they had not expressed the sentiment at the time, which is <laughs> just some really grade A backpedaling right there. Hey, we are super glad that you are alive, 
even if we forgot to show it at the time. We were super happy. We just forgot to smile. So with Thebes destroyed, with some of uh, his tribal neighbors beat up on, and with Greece pacified, Alexander finally decides he's secure enough to carry on his father's legacy, complete his vision, and invade Persia. This is just uh, like a year and a half after he becomes king. The ostensible reason for this invasion of Persia was due to a Persian invasion of Greece 200 years prior and some temples that they had destroyed when they were there. It was also supposedly for the liberation of some Greek city-states in Anatolia that were under Persian rule. But the thing is, the Greeks actually really didn't mind Persian rule for the most part. They were known as pretty laid-back, pretty good rulers, to be honest. In addition, they were also known as very good paymasters when it came to hiring mercenaries. They were always good for their word in terms of paying. And the number one place where they liked to hire mercenaries was from Greece. And as a consequence, though Alexander was supposedly fighting a crusade for Greek liberty, in the end, more Greeks ended up fighting for his enemies than for him. It was a pretty flimsy pretext, and everyone knew that it had more to do with winning glory and riches. And frankly, because he thought he could. He thought he could pull it off. And why did he think that? Why was he so sure that he could just march into the biggest empire on earth and beat them on their home turf? Remember, Persia may have been past their prime, but it was still the dominant power in the known world to these people. They would have armies many times the size of Alexander's. Well, the reasons were, on one hand, supreme self-confidence in his abilities as a commander on the part of Alexander, and on the other hand, Greek chauvinism. The Greeks really believed that they were better than everyone else in everything. And to their credit, they were some of the fiercest fighters in the world, especially when it came to their heavy infantry. So most of the time when they fought other people, this did seem to play out in their mind that they, they typically won more than they lost. Alexander's father, Philip, had created a new infantry tactic that was virtually unbeatable at this point. Traditional Greek hoplites wielded spears about seven or eight feet long, but Philip had trained his men to use great long pikes called sarissas that were more like 15 feet long. With these pikes, you could have four or more ranks of men jabbing the enemy. Philip and Alexander typically used them to hold the enemy in place and then strike with their cavalry to finish them off. So uh, it's with these tactics in mind, it is with great optimism that Alexander invades Persia. He crosses the Hellespont. That's the narrow little strip of water in modern day Turkey that separates Europe from Asia. And he starts marching toward the interior of Asia Minor. That's modern day Turkey. And Alexander's opponent, the king of Persia, was named Darius. He had a number of generals and advisors. One of the senior ones was a Greek by the name of Memnon. Memnon advised Darius to go scorched earth strategy. He said the Macedonian infantry were far superior to their own and they shouldn't risk open warfare. So he advised that they burn all their crops and all their towns in the western part of Asia Minor. Don't give Alexander a chance to gain a toehold or get supplies. You know, we'll basically try and starve him out and force him to turn around and go back to Macedonia. It's a great strategy and it probably would have worked, frankly, but the native Persian advisors of Darius were strongly opposed to this plan and they prevailed. They said in effect, Darius, you are the king of Persia. You're the king of kings, was his official title. Um, and you're expecting us to cower before this upstart kid from nowhere. Macedonia? Who's ever heard of Macedonia? Come on, be serious, man. We're not going to run away from this kid. So they advised Darius to, uh, to send the local army in Asia Minor to go meet him head on and, and, and beat him, turn him around. So against Memnon's council, that's what they do. Um, Darius has his, his army there march against Alexander. And the two armies meet each other at a river called Granicus. And Alexander's chief advisor, Parmenion, advises him to wait. It's risky to attack over a river. 
They'll suffer heavy casualties. And uh, he's sure that if he just waits overnight, they can attack them at dawn and surprise them. In fact, I'll just read the exact quote. Uh, Parmenion says, quote, Under the circumstances, sire, I think it would be wise to camp at the bank of the river as we are. For I doubt our enemies, who are far outnumbered by our infantry, would dare to bivouac near us. At dawn, we will be able to cross the stream easily and will make it across before they are in formation. I feel it would be unsafe for us to attempt the crossing now, since we will not be able to take the army across in a wide formation. For one can see that the river has many deep spots, and, as you see, the banks themselves are high and steep. So as we climb out in disarray in a narrow column, the weakest possible formation, the enemy horsemen will charge, having the advantage of a close formation. Thus, our first stumble would harm our present standing and might even spoil the outcome of the larger war. Okay, but Alexander replied, I know all that, Parmenion, but I would be ashamed after having easily crossed the Hellespont if this little stream, such was the phrase he used to disparage the Granicus, keeps us from crossing as we are. I would consider it unworthy of the Macedonians' renown and my quickness to accept risks. And I think the Persians would take courage and think themselves a match for the Macedonians in battle, seeing that up to now their fears have not been confirmed by what they have experienced. We can see that Alexander was very focused on the psychology of his men, and great generals are always focused on morale, on momentum. As Napoleon is reported to have said, more battles are lost by loss of hope than loss of blood. So, you know, they don't just focus on the X's and O's, and for Alexander, it was no small thing to hesitate. He wanted his forces to feel that they had his confidence, wanted them to feel aggressive and confident, so he attacked immediately. He forms up his troops with his infantry in the center, Parmenion leading the cavalry on the left wing, and he himself leading the cavalry on the right wing, including the elite companion cavalry. They form up, and there's this quiet before the storm. Uh, Arian says, quote, For a time, both armies held their position at the river's edge, shrinking from what lay ahead. There was a great silence on both sides. The Persians were waiting for the Macedonians to enter the river, intending to attack them when they climbed out. You can just imagine this moment. Years of planning, hundreds of miles of marching, hundreds of thousands of men have all led up to this. Alexander's entire life has led up to this, and he's going to risk it all by marching through a river and then uphill up the bank against the greatest army in the world. So you can feel the heaviness of the moment. And then Arian tells us, quote, Then Alexander, leaping onto his horse and urging those nearby to follow him and show themselves true men, ordered the scouts to charge into the river with one infantry battalion. Alexander himself leading the right wing to the sound of war trumpets, and the men raising their cries entered the stream. Now Alexander is leading the right wing, which attacks first, but he doesn't make first contact. A different detachment of the right wing does. And, um, and they're like the first ones to land on Omaha Beach at Normandy in World War II. Here's what Arian tells us uh, happened to them. He says, quote, Where the first troops touched the bank, the Persians shot at them from above, some hurling javelins into the river from the bank, others descending to lower ground at the water's edge. There was a shoving match between the two cavalries, one emerging from the river, the other barring its way, and a dense shower of javelins hurled by the Persians while the Macedonians assailed the enemy with their spears. But the Macedonians, far outnumbered, suffered in the first assault. They were defending themselves from a low and insecure position in the river, whereas the Persians were assailing them from above. What is more, the strongest contingent of the Persian cavalry had been stationed at this spot. Thus, the first Macedonians to engage the Persians, though they showed themselves brave, were cut to pieces. Alexander, seeing this massacre, doesn't retreat, but hurries to the spot with the rest of the cavalry of the right wing. 
quote, bringing up the right wing, Alexander now drew near and himself launched an attack on the Persians at the point where the massive cavalry had been posted and where the Persian commanders had been stationed. This would be a hallmark of Alexander's style. He always went straight for the jugular. He himself would take his best troops and attack their command. In this case, one benefit of this is that it serves as a distraction. Everyone is watching as Alexander attacks the Persian high command. Quote, a fierce battle was joined around Alexander, and meanwhile, battalion after battalion of Macedonians succeeded in crossing the river with no difficulty. So in other words, the Persians are watching Alexander duke it out with some of the best troops in the Persian army, and in the meantime, his, uh, his other soldiers are having no trouble crossing at different points of the river. Arian tells us that though this is mostly a cavalry battle, it resembles an infantry battle because of the tight space around the opposite bank where all the fighting is occurring. It becomes something of a shoving match. Alexander himself exposes himself to great danger. We read, quote, At a certain point in the fighting, Alexander's spear was shattered. He asked Aretes, a royal groom, for another, but Aretes' spear had also been shattered. He was fighting valiantly with the remaining half of his broken spear. He showed it to Alexander and urged him to ask someone else. Demaratus, the Corinthian, one of the companions, gave Alexander his spear. Taking it up and catching sight of Mithridates, Darius's son-in-law, riding far out in front and leading a wedge formation of cavalry, Alexander also rode out ahead of the line, struck Mithridates in the face with his spear, and hurled him down. At that moment, Roisakis rode at Alexander and struck him on the head with a scimitar. Alexander's helmet, though partially broken, checked the blow. Alexander hurled this man to the ground too, striking with his spear through the man's breastplate and into his chest. Spithridates then raised his scimitar against Alexander from behind, but before he could use it, Kletos, son of Dropides, struck him on the shoulder, cutting his arm off with the scimitar still in its grasp. In the meantime, more and more cavalry found themselves able to cross the river, and these joined up with Alexander's forces. Like I said, this is good stuff, you know? I mean, it, with Caesar, you don't get this, right? Of him coming in and knocking a guy off his horse with a spear, and someone coming up behind him and trying to kill him with a sword, but then, you know, uh, a buddy of Alexander's comes up and chops the guy's arm off. I mean, it's really great dramatic stuff. Now remember, the Macedonians fight with sarissas, these big 15-foot pikes. This had advantages and disadvantages, but one advantage is this fighting style tends to wear down the enemy over time. Imagine you're a Persian cavalryman during this battle. You charge in, and at first things are going all right. The Macedonians have these big long pikes, but they can't get much thrusting force because they're so long. I mean, just think about it. You got a 15-foot pole with a, with a metal spike on the end. Think about how hard you're going to be able to stab with something that big and that long, and you're not going to be able to stab very hard. They're more an annoyance than anything else. They're more like poking and pushing than they are truly thrusting to kill. And so you're not too worried. You're knocking aside these sarissas and trying to get a good stab in at your enemy. And maybe you do. Maybe you get one or two good stabs in and you, you kill a couple Macedonians. And then as time goes on, these sarissas keep just swinging around and poking you in the face like flies. Remember, they're so long that multiple ranks of Macedonian soldiers can be going at the same time. So there are just these pikes everywhere hanging around your face. And for the most part, you're blocking them and knocking them aside. And then one glancing strike gets through your defenses and cuts your cheek. It's not much of a cut, but it's not nothing. And then a few minutes later, another pike swings by and hits your mouth. You think it might have knocked out a tooth, but you don't have time to check. And then a sarissa that you don't even see cuts your arm, and now another blow hits your forehead. And now you're tired, you're sick of constantly trying to fend off these blows, there's blood in your eyes, blood in your mouth, 
And you start looking around and seeing that the men to your left and to your right are looking every bit as tired and as cut up and as bloody as you are. And then you see one Sarissa hit a guy square in the face and his nose is half dangling off and you start to back up a little bit. In fact, you realize everyone is backing up a little bit. And then someone starts to turn and run. And before you know it, you've turned your horse around. All you know is you don't want to be the last man on that battlefield. And this is exactly what Arian tells us happened. He says, quote, And now the Persians, their faces and those of their horses, torn by the lances striking them from all sides, were thrust back by the Macedonian cavalry. They gave way first where Alexander was bearing the brunt of the battle. When their center collapsed, both cavalry wings also broke and a desperate flight began. The Persian cavalry flee, and the Greek mercenaries who served as infantry are left standing dumbfounded in the middle of the battlefield. Alexander surrounds them and begins to slaughter them, though he does eventually take 2,000 prisoners who he sends back to Greece as slaves. The Persian army is shattered completely. Now the war isn't over, this was a regional army, not the full Persian army, and Darius himself wasn't present at the battle. But it's a huge victory. In a single day, Alexander has won all of Asia Minor, most of modern day Turkey. Alexander then does something interesting. He takes a Macedonian man by the name of Kalas and appoints him as satrap. Satraps were the Persian governors of the various regions throughout the empire. So this is Alexander, a Macedonian at the head of a combined Macedonian and Greek army in the cause of Greek liberty, and he's full on borrowing Persian institutions. It's basically the opposite of what the USA did in the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, partially this reflects the centrality of the Persian empire to the Mediterranean world. It was the only real empire around. The Persian king was the king of kings. In fact, in Arian's campaigns of Alexander, when he simply says the king, he isn't referring to Alexander, but to Darius. So this is the only real model that Alexander has for how to run an empire. But it's also a clever propaganda move by Alexander. He's basically saying, look, I'm the king of kings. I'm the one with the power and authority to appoint satraps. Look at me. I'm the captain now. And uh, that would be his official position ever after the battle of Granicus, that he was the rightful king and he was only temporarily being dispossessed by Darius, who for whatever reason was stubbornly refusing to let Alexander take his rightful throne. In fact, he still collects the same taxes that the Persian Empire collected, the exact same taxes. He just has them come to him now instead of to the Persians. And on a certain level, this was effective in portraying a sense of inevitability that he would eventually win and take the Persian throne. The one place where he does change the administration is in any Greek city-states in Asia Minor, of which there were many. He abolishes any oligarchies, establishes democracies in their stead, and cancels their taxes to the Persian Empire. Despite all this, capitulation to Alexander is not total, and he has to march around and attack or besiege holdout towns in order to subdue them and get them on board and with the program. This goes on uh, all autumn. Uh, and then in the winter, Alexander sends home any recently married troops so they can take care of their business and, frankly, impregnate their new wives. It was important to the Macedonians to keep the population base uh, healthy and growing. Alexander himself remains with his older troops, the poor guys who don't get to go home and get laid, and together they conduct more mopping up operations in Asia Minor. It is during these mopping up operations that Alexander comes to the city of Gordian, they had a legend in Gordian that an old farmer had a wagon and long story short, there's a rope at the end of the wagon that had tied it to a post, but the rope got impossibly tangled into this huge tight ball of a knot. And this old farmer prophesied 
that whoever could untie the knot would be the king of all of Asia. Supposedly the knot sat there unsolved for a hundred years. So Alexander comes to the city and finds this knot. He's 22. He's just won this major victory. He's styling himself as the king of Asia. And he feels like he has to solve it and prove that he's the one to rule all of Asia. According to one legend, he stays up all night, carefully picking at the knot and eventually is able to untie it. But according to the more famous version of the story, he stares at the knot for a while, looks at it, goes around, looks at it from every angle, and then takes out his sword, cuts it in half and says, now it is undone. This is, you know, a great story. Uh, probably not exactly true, right? It sounds a little too good to be true. And it probably is a, a little bit of a myth, but the Gordian knot is a common expression now for an extremely difficult or unsolvable problem. And cutting the Gordian knot is an expression that means solving such a problem with a clever or incisive solution. And true or not, I think the story is illustrative of Alexander's nature. He always found the direct route to solving the problem and shed all extraneous considerations. After cutting the knot, Alexander is rejoined in Gordian by his fresh recruits who had gone home from the winter to spend some alone time with their wives. And with his army once again at full strength, Alexander marches towards Syria, another region within the Persian Empire. But he was not going to be able to march through the rest of the Persian Empire unchecked. Darius himself had not been present at the Battle of Granicus, as I said, and he was now leading the full force of the Persian Empire, and he was pursuing Alexander. When Alexander hears that Darius is in the area, he marches straight for him. In fact, Darius and Alexander, in their haste to meet each other, both are anxious for this battle. They actually overshoot each other and uh, end up on kind of opposite sides. This is dangerous for Alexander because it cuts off his supply line. So he turns his army around to meet Darius and the Persian army at a town called Issus. He's in a very familiar position. Once again, he has to be an attacker. Once again, he must attack over a river. But unlike at the Granicus, where his forces were pretty close to equal, probably outnumbered the Persians a little bit, in this battle, his army is vastly outnumbered by the Persians. The night before the battle, Arian tells us that Alexander, quote, said everything a brave leader would naturally say to hearten brave men on the eve of a dangerous venture. And his troops approached him from all sides, clasped their king by the hand one by one, and with encouraging words, urged him to lead them out at once. The next day, Alexander leads them out to the battlefield, only to find that Darius has begun to build rudimentary defensive fortifications on the opposite bank of the river. And that's a very sensible thing for Darius to do, since he knows Alexander is the one who has to attack. But Alexander uses this fact to his advantage uh, for a, a morale boost. He tells his men, this made it clear that Darius in his own mind had already been humbled in spirit. In other words, look, Darius is building fortifications because he knows he can't meet us on open ground. He knows that he can't go mano a mano, his men versus my men. Uh, they, they know that we're better than them. That's why they're scared. They're building these fortifications. Once the armies line up, Alexander rides on his horse up and down the line, and we imagine he must have looked stunning, right? Riding on Bucephalus, sporting his armor, and looking strong, dangerous, and very active. Um, while Darius was at the battle, situated in the center, behind the front divisions, behind the infantry in the middle, you don't get the impression that he was particularly involved in the battle, or that he was the kind of warrior that Alexander was. So Alexander, by riding up and down the line, is drawing this contrast between him, a fighting man, and Darius, who's just kind of sitting behind the, the enemy forces. So finally, the time comes for the battle to begin. Once again, Alexander leads the right wing, Parmenion leads the left wing, and the infantry are stationed at the center. 
And once again, Alexander leads the initial charge. This charge is largely successful, but it's unfortunately too successful, and Alexander leads too far out and becomes separated from his infantry at the center. These infantry try to attack the Greek mercenaries at Darius' center and are largely unsuccessful. In fact, they're suffering. They're faring pretty poorly, and it looks like they're losing to these Greek mercenaries. At the same time, Parmenion's forces on the left wing are attacked by the Persian cavalry on that wing and are also looking like they're losing. They're having a tough time of it. So Alexander's winning on the right flank, but it's looking like it won't be enough since his center and his left flank are being beaten. But that's when Alexander pulls out his signature move, his stone cold stunner, his RKO, his people's elbow, his, his move that he pulls time and time again in every battle. He takes the men with him, the companion cavalry, essentially the special forces of the Macedonian army, and he charges straight at the back of the Persian infantry, right where Darius and the Persian command are located. Darius, who was in a war chariot, as was the Persian tradition, sees Alexander coming straight for him, realizes he's suddenly in danger, and flees the battlefield, um, um, runs, runs away. And when the rest of the Persian army sees the king of kings, a god among men, fleeing before Alexander, even though they are winning at that moment, they too turn and run. And just like that, Alexander flips what was looking like it might be a defeat into a huge victory, a shattering victory. Alexander was a genius at this. He understood the one thing he needed to achieve in order to win, and then he assembled an extremely strong, highly concentrated force to achieve it. He is once again cutting the Gordian knot, so to speak. He realizes he doesn't actually have to untie the knot, he just has to undo it in the simplest way possible. Similarly, he doesn't need to beat all of Darius's hundreds of thousands of men, he just needs to beat Darius himself. And so obviously, you know, the lesson there is try to be like Alexander. Don't try to win everywhere. Try to identify the one thing that you need to achieve that will unlock everything else and then concentrate all of your energy and your best resources on achieving that one thing. I see this happen to me all the time where I'm planning out my week. I'll have this big long list of things that I need to get done. And I'm kind of just thinking of the week in sequential order. Uh, like, okay, do A, do B, do C, do D, and just work my way down the list. And, you know, there's nothing totally wrong with that. I do need to get a lot of those things done, but it's actually much more effective to identify the one or two things that I have to get done and then focus 80% of my energy on doing those things. And I find that when I do that, I have, I have much more successful weeks and I accomplish much more. Now, after Darius flees, Alexander would like to pursue him, but there's a problem. Parmenion is still getting owned by the Persian cavalry, and about half the Macedonian infantry are also in trouble. So rather than pursuing right away, Alexander has to wheel around and save the rest of his army. The battle is won, but Darius escapes. Though he does leave his chariot, his shield, his cloak, and his bow and arrow in haste to get away. Alexander, after mopping up and making sure all of his forces are okay, he tries to, to chase Darius, but it's been too long. He gets away. But he does come upon the Persian camp, and he finds Darius's mother and wife and children, who he takes prisoner. And uh, as he takes them prisoner, Alexander's men are wondering, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to execute them? Are you going to have them publicly humiliated, hold them for ransom, imprison them, cut off their hair? You know, this is ancient warfare. There were plenty of nasty options for humiliating or torturing them. And Alexander says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take them. I want you to put them in a royal tent. Refer to them as your highness. Bring them the nicest food we can spare. And in all ways, 
continue to treat these people like royalty of Persia, which seems like an odd choice at first. I mean, aren't these the people he's supposedly overthrowing? Um, it actually reminds me a little bit of a story from the life of Julius Caesar. When Caesar won his final battle in the Civil War, his men go to the tent of the enemy general, Cato, and they find a chest with all of his letters. Now, this is a juicy find because it was a dirty civil war with lots of people switching sides and professing to support one side, but secretly supporting another and, and all this sort of intrigue. And so with these letters, Caesar and his supporters can finally find out who were really their friends all along and who had only been pretending, who was playing both sides. Over the previous decades, there had been a series of bloody murders and executions that were called prescriptions. And so the assumption was, hey, we're going to look at these letters. We're going to find out who was really opposing you this entire time. And we're going to put them on a prescription list and, and they're going to be killed. And his men are giddy at this fine. And they come to Caesar saying, all right, what do you want us to do with these letters? And Caesar says, thank you for finding these. Thank you for bringing this to me. Now kindly put them on a pyre and burn them all. Because the war is over. All Romans were his subjects now. It didn't matter. There was no opposition. To take retribution on his enemies would be to admit that he still had enemies. And in Caesar's view, he didn't. He was the one legitimate ruler of the Roman Empire. Well, the Roman Republic, which was soon to become the Roman Empire. And Alexander is doing the same thing. He's essentially saying, look, I just beat Darius. I'm the king of kings now. These women are not only my subjects, but they're essentially my family now, since they were related to the old king of kings, who I'm essentially inheriting this empire from. And so what he's doing is establishing continuity with the old rulers, saying, look, it's the same kingdom. There's just a new guy at the top, but you're going to keep paying your same taxes and obeying the same laws. And it is a genius strategy and a very effective propaganda tool that makes, you know, local rulers who have been living under the Persians much more likely to say, okay, yeah, we'll capitulate. You know, same thing. The new guy, basically the same as the last. In a matter of weeks, Darius manages to make his way back to the heart of the Persian empire many of his forces having survived. Uh, he feels beaten and humbled, but not completely defeated. It's not hopeless. It's not like Alexander can just march to Persepolis and, and take over the empire now. And so he writes to Alexander and makes a request and a proposal. Arian summarizes what Darius wrote. Uh, he says, quote, their battle's outcome had doubtless accorded with the will of some god. And as a king, he was now asking a king for his wife, mother, and captured children. And was also ready to form a friendship and an alliance with Alexander. In a follow-up letter, Darius offers Alexander all of the Persian territory from the Euphrates to the Greek Sea, which is modern-day Iraq, Syria, Turkey, Jordan, Palestine, Israel, and Egypt, and his own daughter's hand in marriage. So this is like a godfather deal, right? This is Alexander, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. So Alexander has made it. Darius is offering him intermarriage with the most powerful family on earth, and oh yeah, half the Persian empire. He's 23 years old. He could accept this deal and go down in history as one of the greatest conquerors of all time already. His empire would be 1A and 1B with the Persian empire. They would basically co-rule the world together. This is like uh, being 23 years old and having someone offer to acquire the company that you own 100% for $200 billion. Okay, you won. Maybe you'll have slightly less money than Elon Musk by a couple billion but you just played the game of tech and won. Cash out, baby. This is the moment you've been waiting for. And for Alexander, you know, if he accepts this deal, he'd be, along with Darius, the most powerful and wealthy man in the world. The only problem with that sentence to Alexander are the words, along with Darius. And so Alexander shows the letter to his advisors and Parmenion tells him, come on, man, this is a no-brainer. 
I would accept that deal if I were you. But quote, Alexander replied that if he were Parmenion, he would do likewise. But since he was Alexander, he would answer Darius as he did in fact answer him. Alexander does not accept the deal. He says in essence this, hey Darius, first of all, if you want your wife, mother, and children back, come to my court and ask for them. You will not be harmed. They will not be harmed. You'll be given your family back as well as anything else that you can convince me to give you. Secondly, I will marry your daughter if I choose to, even if you don't offer her. That's my prerogative as king of kings. And lastly, Darius, stop referring to me as your equal. You are not my equal. I just defeated you in battle and proved as much. In the future, please refer to me as the king of Asia. Arian tells us, quote, when Darius heard this, he gave up hope of coming to terms with Alexander and again set about preparing for war. For Alexander, being the most accomplished Greek king of all time was not enough. Being co-emperor of Persia was not enough. He had set out to conquer the entire Persian empire and nothing less than total victory would do. There's something really powerful about that, really powerful about the clarity of vision that Alexander had of knowing exactly what you're trying to achieve. It allows you to see through all the fluff, all the extra stuff that can get in your way and slow you down. It sharpens your thinking and keeps you focused. And as I read this story, it got me thinking, okay, what is my Persian empire? What is that thing that I won't stop until I have achieved? I think everyone should find that for themselves and should know it and always keep it in their minds. You know, what is your walking away point? Where, what, what do you have to achieve? And you'll never walk away before you achieve it. So anyway, that's it for part one of Alexander the Great. Stay tuned for part two coming soon. Until then, thanks for listening. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.